So we are currently between sermon series and in three weeks time we start a new sermon series on the book of Colossians which I am excited about because it's an amazing book and I'm going to call this series uh, something like finishing well or finishing strong because uh, as the saying goes it's not how you start but how you finish that matters and at the start of the year who could have predicted what's happened this year right Um, but as a church And for each of us who are part of this church, my encouragement and my challenge is that I want us to finish strong in faith in 2020 through all that's happened. I want us to finish strong in faith. Uh, Like the Tour de France people, it's not those who go out in the early breakaway that win. It's often they get get caught up and then someone else goes ahead and actually ends up climbing the mountain and winning. And I want us to finish strong in faith in 2020 as a church and as individuals. And so actually the next 40 days is a pretty great way to start finishing strong. But if you pray every day, for a lot of people, uh, you know, our lives are busy. If you were to pray every day for 40 days, if you were to fast from something for 40 days, that would be very significant. But that's in a couple of weeks. Uh, This morning, uh, we're in the gap between sermon series. So I've got what's called a free hit, okay? Uh, Which means I can, you know, just do whatever I want. And I'm about to go on holidays too. I'm about to take two weeks off. So I feel even freer just to to preach whatever I feel like this morning. Um, So this morning I'm going to share something a little bit different. And you'll either find this really exciting or you'll have to track with me and concentrate. Um, Hopefully the former. Um, But I want to preach about uh, a message which I've titled... Toto, I've got a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. All right. So, in the, uh, in the 1932 movie, The Wizard of Oz, for those who don't know the reference, uh, Dorothy is uh, a young girl who lives with her family and her dog in Kansas. And one day a tornado comes across, uh, comes across the uh, fields towards their house and uh, for whatever reason, the family get away, but Dorothy uh, is trying to run away or something, I can't remember, and she is in the house uh, with her little dog, Toto, and the storm uh, comes and she gets knocked out and the house gets picked up and the house gets carried away and spins and spins and spins. And when it lands and when she comes to, she goes outside and she is in a whole different world. And she looks around and she makes the famous quote, Toto, I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. Leslie Newbigin was a missionary to India. And he, in fact, left around the same time as this movie was released in the early 1930s. And he went from London, where he had been born and bred, and he moved to India. And he was a missionary to India for 40 years. And at the end of his missionary time, he actually caught a bus from India back to London. And he arrived in London in the 1970s. And he looked around the place that was his home. And he had the same kind of feeling that Dorothy had when she woke up in the land of Oz. London, England, the West had changed. And it wasn't just that it had changed in outward ways. You know, fashion changes, music changes, 
and a lot had changed between 1930 and 1970. What he began to see was that there were deeper changes. There were profound changes that had taken place in relation to society and in relation to what that meant for the place of the church. There are things that had risen up, that, that, that there were new things that hadn't really been seen. Uh, when he'd left, institutions were trusted. Banks, churches, parliament, these were the trusted institutions that society relied on to give it its meaning and its stability. And now these institutions were under attack in a way they hadn't been before. Scientific rationalism, which had come around in the, in the sort of 1800s, but scientific rationalism was beginning to lead to an actually outright attack on Christianity. Science was saying, we've got the truth and Christianity is just myths. There was the rise of atheism. There was the sexual revolution that had happened in the 1960s that had begun to change, in fact, flip on its head, basic moral standards and views that had been around for a millennium. And people were beginning to challenge and reject the authority of the church and the place of the church. And basically what he described is that the church was moving from the centre to the fringes, to the margins. In fact, when I went to Lobethal a few weeks ago for a prayer meeting, there was a, a, a picture on the wall of a German town, a medieval German town. And the, the town was perfectly circular. It was ringed by a, a wall. And in the town, in the, in the in the town was a church. And where do you think the church was in the town? Right in the middle. And the church was the biggest building in town and it was the tallest building in town. It was right in the middle and it was the most impressive building in town. And that was a statement. It said the church's place is at the center. And that's the society that Newbigin had left. When he came back, the church was at the margins and moving there. Now, since the 1970s, what have we seen in the West? What have we seen in Australia? In fact, even in the last 17 years since I started ministry, I have seen this change accelerate profoundly. We have a new morality in this country. In fact, things have been flipped on their heads so much that now some people are looking at the church and saying, the church, Christian belief, is immoral. Christian belief is wrong. It doesn't fit the new morality. We have a media and, and social media, but, but the media who wouldn't dare insult or mock any religion except one, Christianity. Open season on Christianity. And uh, uh, I remember hearing um, in my old church, Unley Park, uh, there was an old pastor there. I remember he apparently he used to say to his parishioners, when you go for a job, you put on your resume that you are a Christian and that you go to the Unley Park Baptist Church. And that will mean something. If you put that on your resume today, it will mean something. Probably that you won't get a job. We face a scenario today where people in their workplace or even in their private life, if they on social media quoted certain scriptures from the Bible, might find themselves sacked or fired or investigated for doing that in some way. Isn't that interesting? Toto, I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. And the big question is, what do we do about this? What does this mean? 
You see, Newbegin in 1970s England, he also looked at the world, but he also looked at the church and he looked at the fact that the church had been moved from the centre to the margins and he looked at what the church was doing about this. And do you know what the church was doing about this? Absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. And so the question is, what do we do about this? What has happened to our world and our culture? How do we get here? What does this mean for the church and for us as Christians? These are questions I've actually been exploring a lot lately through uh, some writings of people like Tim Keller and others through a podcast called This Cultural Moment that if you're into podcasts, I would highly recommend. And I've drawn some of the stuff, ideas and quotes from there that I'll share in this sermon. So I'll give credit to that. But uh, Jesus said to the Pharisees, he said, when evening comes, you say, it'll be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning you say, today it will be stormy for the sky is red and overcast. And then he said this, you know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. He said, you're unable to interpret what's going on in the world, what the signs of the times are. And actually it is important for us as Christians to be able to understand our culture as much as we should understand the scriptures. If you understand scriptures but don't understand culture, yes, you'll have a solid foundation, but you won't be able to relate your faith in the real world. We need to know both. So this is, um, this is what Newbigin uh, began to do. See, Newbigin was a mi- missionary and when a missionary goes to a place like India, to a, to a new culture, they've got the gospel and they say, how do we take this gospel and relate it in contextually into the culture? And what he was realising was that now the Christians who had the gospel needed to figure out a new way to contextualise the gospel message to their culture. Right? It doesn't mean changing the gospel, but it means relating the gospel. So Newbigin, uh, he was uh, well known for... Um, he, he sort of brought up this, uh, this concept. So if we go to the slide about, he, he sort of un, he explained what had happened in Christianity over 2,000 years in this way. If we can go to the first one. Is there, is there, there we go. He said for about 350 years, the Western world after the birth of the church at Pentecost was, it was described as pre-Christian for th- about 350 years. The church was in the minority. The church was powerless in the world's eyes in terms of political influence and, and that kind of thing. It wasn't powerless, it had the Holy Spirit. But it was powerless and weak in the world's eyes. The church was misunderstood. If you read the early Gospels and, and then you read about the early church, people thought they were some sort of strange cult. They'd read about communion and think, what, they're, they're, they're eating the body and drinking the blood, this is really weird. There was a lot of misunderstanding about the church. The church was frequently persecuted, at times severely, But within the church, the church understood that they were radically different and they embraced the gospel and they embraced the change the gospel brings on them. And they saw themselves as profoundly a group of people on mission to their culture, on mission to their society for 350 years. Now, in about 330-something, Nick might even know, the Emperor Constantine made Christianity the dominant religion of the the Roman Empire. I should say, in the pre-Christian era, while persecuted, misunderstood and considered powerless, the gospel spread radically and quickly and profoundly. Christianity spread like wildfire in that context. 
But then Christianity became the dominant religion of the empire. And so for the next thousand years or so, Christianity was the majority religion in the West. It was powerful. It was at the centre of culture and society. It wasn't persecuted, it was protected. It wasn't radically different. Culture and Christianity became aligned. So actually the law, the law as we have it today, is actually based on biblical law. The foundations of our, of our whole Western culture is based on the West. So Christianity colonised the West. And uh, we weren't radically different, therefore. We were kind of aligned with culture. And no longer was the church predominantly seen as being on mission because everyone was Christianised. You know, even if people weren't genuinely Christian, just about everyone got christened, uh, went to church for weddings, went to church for funerals, went to church on special occasions and saw the church as valuable. Church was at the centre of society. So what do we see now in our world? Well, this is really interesting. If we go to the next slide, where are we now? We're back to being a minority. We are reducing in power and influence. We are once again misunderstood. And we are increasingly finding in the West that the church is starting to be persecuted at some level. Nowhere near the persecution faced by the early church, but there is this growing sense that this is something that in various ways is happening to Christians or particularly those willing to stand up and speak out. The question is, are we going to be willing to be radically different in our world? Are we going to be radically different? And lastly, are we going to realise that we need to be on culture to our society and are we going to think about how we do that? All right. Are you still with me? Are you finding this interesting? Awesome. Okay. So what do we do about this scenario in our world? Well, we've got a number of options and I'm going to show you some pictures to highlight these options. Here's the first option. <laughs> first option is we put our head in the sand. We put our head in the sand. I, uh, I preached a number of years ago at the Groat Street Church of Christ. Groat Street had been a church of around 400 people. When I preached there about 10 or maybe 15 years ago, there were 18 people in the congregation. 400 to 18 in a generation. There was no one under the age of 60. Interestingly, in this 350 seat church, everyone still sat in their exact same seats. <laughs> two people, eight rows back on the left, two seats in, because that's where they'd always sat. Someone 25 rows back on the far right, because that's where they'd always sat. Fascinating. These people were surrounded by a multicultural society. They had so many opportunities to be witnesses to the gospel. But really what was most important to them now was that on Sunday the doors got opened, they heard a sermon, they heard a couple of hymns and they got to have a, couple of, a cup of tea at the end. Their head was in the sand. They were beautiful people, they were loving Christian people, they were kind to me when I came to preach to them. But really, honestly, their head was in the sand and had been for years about what was happening to their church and to the world around them. That church, which is right at the end of Moonta Street, the, the um, middle of Chinatown, that church is now a Korean restaurant. The next option is this. We can live in a bubble. 
a Christian bubble. We can say the world has gone mad, the world has gone crazy, and particularly if I've got young kids, I'm going to protect my kids, I'm going to keep them in a Christian world, I'm going to keep them just, just I'm just going to keep the world out, we're going, to, we're going to protect my kids and we're going to avoid all the mess that's out there. It's very closely tied to head in the sand, they partner together well, and you kind of live in this bubble. And you just say, culture is, is you know, becoming more and more evil, so I'm going to avoid culture. I'm going to stick in just in Christian culture. Third option is this one. What is this one? We just become like our culture. We just become like our culture. How can we do that? At uh, the time the church says, well, this little bit of the Bible, uh, when it speaks about uh, equality and the poor, that's, that's love, so we'll hold on to that. But this little bit of the Bible, which talks about sexual ethics that are different than what the world says today, well, we'll just rip that page out and we'll just forget about that. This bit of the Bible that speaks about um, racial equality and gender, you know, all, you know um, here there is no slave or free or Jew or Gentile, we're all, we're all one. We'll keep that because that's popular today. But this other bit of the Bible that speaks about the, the sanctity of life, we'll rip that out because that's not so popular today. And you just become, you change your theology to fit what the world says is cool or not cool. Or in your daily life, you just hide your faith. You just hide your faith. No one in your world even knows you're a Christian. No one can tell. You fit in so beautifully, you're like the chameleon and people don't see it. It's an easy option to take. What would God have us do? Well, I believe passionately that God has a plan for our church and he has a plan for each Christian person in the West today that he does not want us to shrink back. He does not want us to lose our distinctiveness. He does not want us to give up because the fourth option is this. I remember the fourth option. It's despair. You just say, it is hopeless. The church is dying. The church is shrinking. The church is gone. The church is, we might as well just give up. We might as well just stay home on a Sunday. We might as well just go to Bunnings like everyone else or go out for a coffee because that's what you do these days. We might as well just allow the world to shape us. We might as well, you know, Alpha comes along. I won't invite someone because they'll probably say no. I won't mention my faith to someone because they might be offended and we just despair about the state of the church in the West. Is that what God wants? No, he doesn't. He doesn't. So what's the answer? What's the solution? I want to talk about four things that I think profoundly come from Scripture, and this is where I'm finally going to get to the Bible. If you've got a Bible, get it out, or something that can track the Bible because they don't have the Scriptures that I'm going to refer to. First thing I'm going to say is this, that the church needs to do formation and discipleship incredibly well. And every Christian in the church, that's you and me, needs to, who are, those of us who are believers, we need to passionately pursue a deep and close relationship with God and allow this, the Word of God to be forming us day by day. Because if we don't, the world is going to shape us, not the gospel. Um, let me give you an example. For our young people today, if you go back 70, 80, 90 years to Newbiggins time, 1930s England, then the sexual ethic of the world matched the, the ethic of Christianity. Okay, So the, the most people believe that you, you date and, and then you get engaged and then you get married and then you begin living with your spouse and sexuality is bound in the relationship of marriage between a man and a woman. Okay, Now that 
that today is totally not the, the normal, normal belief of Western culture. Right? We understand that? That is just not even seen as, like it used to be that people that lived together before marriage were doing what? They were living in? They were living in sin. Now, that concept is out the window. Okay, it's out the window. That's not even, it's not even in non-Christians' mind that there's anything, because uh, they're not following the gospel. How can they be expected to follow the way of Christian belief if they're not Christians? But for young people 70 years ago, just living how culture did meant they were kind of living how Jesus wanted them to. But now they need to make a radical choice. And the only way they're going to make that radical choice is if they are absolutely convinced that God loves them so much that he has given his word and his way to lead them into the, the best life. And that they love God so much that they say, God, even if I don't understand this, even if I'm doing something that the world says is crazy and stupid and weird, I'm going to do this because I love you so much. I want to glorify you in every single part of my life. Right? Just cruising along, following whatever whim of culture is not going to lead people to follow the way of Jesus in any area of life. The Apostle Paul said this to the Galatian church. He said, my dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Paul's like, I am, I am, it's like I am experiencing the pains of childbirth, which I haven't been through myself, but I understand is pretty painful. That's the level of pain, he says, I feel because of my deep desire that Christ would be formed in you. And we need Christ to be formed in the hearts and in the lives of every single believer. No cultural Christianity, a deep, close walk with God, following the word of God, filled by the spirit of God. Amen. All right. You still with me? All right, great. Uh, second point is this. We need to constantly review this question. Am I being shaped by the culture or by the gospel? Am I being shaped by the culture or the gospel? You know, they've done studies, extensive studies of evangelical Christians in the US. And do you know what they find? They find this. Christians are just as materialistic as non-Christians. Christians are just as consumeristic as non-Christians. Christians are just as individualistic as non-Christians. Christians make decisions about work, money, time, relationships, almost identical to non-Christians. There is almost no distinctive in their actual lives than non-Christians. We need to hear the words of Romans 12, 1 to 2. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy... To offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. And then verse 2. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing and perfect will. We need to review and say, what is shaping me? Because what's happened in the post-Christian world is just as when, when Christianity went from being pre-Christian to Christian and Christianity colonised uh, culture, now in post-Christian world, culture is colonising Christianity. Culture is colonising Christianity. All right. Third point is this. We need to be relevant but radical. 
We need to be relevant but radical. Paul said this, he said, to the Jews I became like the Jews, like a Jew to win the Jews. To the Jews I became like a Jew to win the Jews. And then he went on to say, to those not having the law, Gentiles, I became like one not having the law, so as to win those not having the law. He said, to the weak, I became weak to win the weak. And then he made the, the summary statement, I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means I may save some. Right? He says, I am, I am profoundly seeking to connect with whoever I'm relating to. When I'm with Jewish people, I'm going to be just connected and related to them so that I can reach them. When I'm with Gentile people, I'm going to behave like a Gentile person so that I can reach the Gentile person. Without giving up his Christian faith, he says, I've got to relate this gospel to them. We've got to figure out how we are relevant. There's nothing worse than a church that becomes completely irrelevant in its styles and its forms and its structures and what it does to its world and cannot relate to non-Christian people. Um, and we need to be willing to sacrifice some of our preferences for the sake of connecting with the younger generation. There are many, many churches out there. Sadly, the vast majority of churches in Australia today have lost the younger generations. They've lost them. This is not the odd church. This is the majority. You go into churches all around the hills, all around Adelaide, and you will find how many people under the age of 50? Maybe one or two in each church. All right. But... Um, but we also need to be distinctive. Paul also said this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22. He said this, Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. This message of the cross, this message of the blood of Jesus and the body of Christ broken for us, this message is going to be a stumbling block for some and it's going to be foolish to others and it's going to be offensive to some people and it's going to be misunderstood. But let me tell you, we do not stop proclaiming this gospel. We should never stop proclaiming this gospel because once we do that, we have lost our message and we have lost the power of God. The power of God is in the message of the cross and it is in the message of the cross, in the salvation through faith in Jesus that the hope of the world stands. Paul said this in Romans 1, For I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation for everyone who believes. And as Christians, we need to make Stand on that gospel. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Fourth point is this. We need to trust that God has a plan for Australia and for the West. We need to trust God has a plan. The minute that we give up and say, uh, no, it's all over, the church is just going to slowly die out, we have, have missed something really important. And the really important thing we've missed is this. God never gives up on people. God never gives up on a nation. God never stops working. Do you know that right through history, there has been time 
and time again where people have said the church is gone, Christianity is gone in this nation. Do you know in the 1700s in America, there were people saying Christianity is gone in America. America is a wild and lawless place, especially this area through the south of America that we now call the Bible Belt. The area that is now the Bible Belt was the area that in the 1700s people were saying, Christianity is gone. Within a generation, it will die out in this nation. And then there was the Great Awakening. And then there was the Second Great Awakening. And in Europe, there was things like the Welsh Revival. And there was things like uh, Wesleyan Methodism that came along and brought change in people's hearts. And I believe passionately that we've got to keep believing that God is not finished with this nation. That we believe that God is not finished with this nation. Amen. And that revival is going to come to this nation. And I don't know when and I don't know how, but I believe that revival is going to come to this nation. That God has a plan for this nation. And lastly, therefore, we need to wake up. We need to wake up. Keith Green in 1970 said this. He sang a song, Asleep in the Light. He said, do you see? Do you see all the people sinking down? Don't you care? Don't you care? Are you going to let them drown? How can you be so numb not to care if they come? You close your eyes, you pretend the job's done. Last night at half past 11... I found myself driving around the streets of Bridgewater looking for these boys who were missing. And above me there were search helicopters and on the top of German Town Hill Road there were SES cars everywhere and police cars everywhere. There were teams gathering. And everywhere I drove there were people with torches walking around, desperate to find the lost. Desperate to find the lost. There were two lost boys and people wanted to find the lost. But as a church, are we desperate that the lost would be found? Are we desperate that the lost would be found? I, I, I was listening to a pastor speaking about how he, how, how he led his church into having a heart for the lost in his neighbourhood, in his world. And he said it started with a simple prayer that he started praying and he started praying it every single day. Lord, give me a heart for the lost. Give me a heart for the lost because it is so easy as Christians to settle down in our comfortable middle class Christianity and lose the fact that there is, a, there is an eternity and not everyone's going to spend eternity with Jesus, but everyone who puts their faith in Jesus will, the Bible says, be saved. Do we have a heart for the lost? Do we have a heart for the lost? I'm not sure that we do. Why don't we start praying, Lord, give me a heart for the lost. God has a plan for the West. God has a plan for Australia, the great Southland of the Holy Spirit. We'll see a flood in this land. But we've got to get on our knees and start praying for it. Not many churches, not many churches who no longer have children in their church have ever, ever gathered together and said, we have a crisis happening in our church. Let us get on our knees and pray that God 
brings a new generation into this church. We've got to pray. We've got to be a people of prayer. Amen. Thank you. We're going to lead now into a time of communion where we remember that the body of Christ was broken for us, that the blood of Jesus was shed for us. And we're going to remember that. Uh, earlier this week, I came across something that, um, you know when you, you just miss something that, that everyone's seen and you just miss it? And um, this morning, earlier this week, I came across uh, uh, the YouTubes of people singing the blessing, right? And, and maybe some of you like me have missed that. But the blessing is a song that, that in the COVID isolation phase, people started putting these YouTubes together of people singing the blessing over a nation. And people would, using Zoom, record themselves singing this in their lounge room or whatever, and then they'd piece it all together and then they would play it. And there's blessings for every country you can imagine, and there's a blessing for Australia. So as we take communion this morning, if this video works, Trish, is it going to work? Here it comes. Um, we're just going to listen to and watch the blessing Australia. Just, just wait. We'll just wait a minute. Um, but this is a whole bunch of people. There's a few you might see, like Colin Buchanan's in it. Um, people just singing a blessing in, in, over Australia. And I just felt like prophetically in response to this sermon as we share communion, to hear a prayer of blessing over our nation was, was significant. So why don't you come and receive communion in, in your time and um, go back to your seat, uh, eat the bread, and then, and then we'll just start to listen to this song. And at the end of this song, we will uh, drink the cup together. So hold on to the cup. This is a table to which everyone who knows Jesus and loves the Lord uh, is invited. Come in your own time and receive. You've been listening to a sermon from Hills Baptist Church. To find out more or to hear other great content, find us at hillsbaptist.com or on your podcast app.